Let us pray. Heavenly Father, through weak human words, give us grace to hear your true, living, and incarnate word, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Many of you are friends with Father Tim Lucan on Facebook. He is a priest and a member of Company of Jesus, which Father Jim is also a part of. And he has a radio show in Newport News and uh, runs a food pantry as well. And he was lamenting on Facebook a few weeks ago that there was a Christian radio station in the area that was celebrating the 12 days of Christmas, but they were doing it as a countdown to Christmas. So they started on the 13th and it was the 12 days up to Christmas. That is not what the 12 days of Christmas mean. For those of us here, most of us probably know, and if you don't, that's okay, but most of us know that Christmas is not one day, but it's 12, and it starts on December 25th and goes till Epiphany, which is January 6th, and you'll hear more about that next Sunday from Father Jim. The purpose of Christmas, of course, is not the celebration of excess materialism, but the incarnation of the Son of God. On Christmas Day, we had a reading from Titus that taught us four important lessons about the Incarnation. The Incarnation is grace appeared to us. The Incarnation leads to salvation for all. The Incarnation trains us. And the Incarnation is intricately tied to the crucifixion. Today, we learn another important implication of the Incarnation, that the Incarnation makes it possible for us to be children of God. The reading from John is especially beautiful um, from a literary perspective. In order to teach good writing, we tell our students that in the introduction to a paper, they tell the reader what they're going to tell them. Then in the body of the paper, they tell the reader, and then in the conclusion, they tell the reader what they told them. Still trying to get some of my students to understand that. But this is exactly what the prologue of John, the first 18 verses that you heard today, this is exactly what it does. They tell the reader the what, namely that God has taken on flesh in the form of Christ in order that he may overcome the darkness. And then the rest of the book shows us how he accomplishes that through the many signs and wonders that he performs and ultimately with the lifting up of the Son of Man on the cross. John's Gospel begins with the term the Logos, the Word, a Greek term for the concept of reality's unifying and undergirding principle, the thing that binds all things together. Verse 1 of the prologue begins, In the beginning was the Word, which parallels Genesis 1.1, In the beginning God created heavens, the heavens and the earth. Interestingly, though, Genesis 1 places God's actions in space and time, in the beginning, God acted, he created, he made. While John 1.1 places the word outside of time, he simply was at the beginning. When taken together, verses 1 through 2 tell us that the word was with God, making him distinguishable, but he was God and was in the beginning with God. This is confusing. How do we resolve this? It's just complicated. We find a hint in the Athanasian Creed, which says, This is the Catholic faith, that we worship one God and Trinity, and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. 
For the person of the Father is a distinct person, the person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. What quality the Father has, the Son has, and the Holy Spirit has. The Father is uncreated, the Son is uncreated, the Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Father is immeasurable, the Son is immeasurable, the Holy Spirit is immeasurable. The Father is eternal, the Son is eternal, and the Holy Spirit is eternal. And yet, they are not three eternal beings. There is but one eternal being. So too, there are not three uncreated or immeasurable beings. There is but one uncreated and immeasurable being. Similarly, the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, the Holy Spirit is almighty. Yet there are not three almighty beings. There is but one almighty being. Thus, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Yet there are not three gods. There is but one God. Thus the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, and the Holy Spirit is Lord. Yet there are not three lords, but one Lord. The Word is not God the Father, but He is God, and He is the communication of God the Father to us. And in verse 3, we're told, All things came into being through Him, and without Him. Not one thing came into being. The word is the agent of creation, making God knowable through the natural world. Romans 1, 19 through 20 says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. So they are without excuse. God is knowable in creation, because of the Son's involvement in the creative activity. And verses 4 through 5 tell us, In him the word was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. We're told by our modern society, Ross Douthat in his book, uh, Bad Religion, talks a lot about this. In modern society, we're told that we have light within ourselves, that you just need to look to the internal and you'll find the truth and you'll find the light. But that's a heresy. John tells us the light is not in ourselves, but that it comes from an external source. The life of the word brings light which shines and the darkness did not and cannot overcome it. Even in the darkness of the cross, Christ is triumphant. And then there's a shift in the, in the prologue, starting in verses 6 through 9. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. John the Baptist is introduced using the term sent from God. Besides Christ, he's the only character in the whole Gospel of John to be described that way. But his role, as we talked about on the third Sunday of Advent, was not to be the light, but rather to testify and point people to the light, and ultimately that led to the conclusion that he must increase and I must decrease. Even though the word was knowable and the general revelation of creation and the proclamation of John the Baptist, verses 10 through 11 tell us that the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. On Christmas Day, we read from Isaiah 53, the suffering servant song. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid upon him, the suffering servant, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet that he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before his shearers is silent, he did not open his mouth. By a perversion of justice, he was taken away. Who could have imagined his future? For he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and his tomb with the rich, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Not even the Jewish people, the ones who had the scriptures, which like John the Baptist testified to the coming Messiah, recognized Christ when he came. In fact, John 5.39, Jesus chastises the Pharisees because he says, you search the scriptures because you think in them that, that, they, that you have eternal life, but it is they that testify on my behalf. Despite the bleakness of this, that the world did not recognize him and even his own rejected him, there's still hope in verses 12 through 13, all is not lost, but to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. Darkness could not overcome him. He enables those who believe to become children of God. This is something Paul will talk about in our Galatians reading. It's not about who you're related to or where your family line originated from. It's about God's work in our lives. It's not about picking up ourselves by our own bootstraps and somehow becoming holy, but rather God's initiative in redeeming the world and reconciling all things to himself. The reason we are able to become children of God is strictly because of God's actions in time and space through the incarnate word, which is the subject of verse 14, which is maybe one of the most profoundly beautiful passages or verses in all of scripture. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. He became like us, so that we might become like him. There's a part in the, when we're celebrating the Eucharist where the water is brought and it's blessed and then it's poured into the cup and the prayer that's prayed as that happens is by the mingling of this water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity of he who humbled himself to take our humanity. Verse 14 evokes two images. The first is in Sirach 24, 8, when Wisdom, who is commonly said to be Christ by the early Christians, says, The Creator of all things gave me a command, and my Creator chose the place for my tent. He said, Make your dwelling in Jacob, and in Israel receive your inheritance. But it also evokes the imagery of the tabernacle. It's related to that word dwell, the word dwelt among us. The tabernacle was where God resided amidst his people, in the center of their camp. There was a tangible presence there, but the, how much more was that presence magnified when the word took on our own flesh? And that presence reveals the glory of the Father, which is full of grace and truth. It is from that grace and truth that we receive grace upon grace. In verses 16 through 18, John juxtaposes this grace against the law of Moses. From the fullness of time, we have all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. 
It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. Moses gave the law, which is good, but it's unable to save us. Christ, on the other hand, is the fullness of God's salvation program and makes relationship with the Father possible because he's the very image of the Father. So John's prologue contains this implication for us that through the word taking on flesh, we might become God's children, which briefly takes us to our Galatians reading in chapter 3, verses 23 through 4, 7, where Paul describes a reality that we and the we that Paul uses is him, the Galatians, and the rest of the church, including us. It describes the reality that we share when it comes to the law, grace, and adoption in more detail. In verse 23, he says, Now before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. To Paul, prior to faith being revealed in Christ, we were imprisoned by the law. The law is like a prison guard in that we are unable to satisfy it on our own, and so it, in it keeps us imprisoned in a state of sin. Think about the Sermon on the Mount, the way that Jesus redefines the law or, or reinterprets the law. It's not just that you don't commit adultery, it's that you don't even in your heart think a lustful thought. It's not that you don't commit murder, it's that in your heart you don't even think an angry thought towards a brother or sister. You can also think of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, I filled all the, fulfilled all the commandments, and Jesus says, well, sell your possessions to the poor then, and he won't do it, and he goes away. He couldn't fulfill the law on his own. Verses 24 through 25 say, Therefore the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came, so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian. Like John, Christ's coming enables us to be adopted by God through justification by faith, making us free from our prison keeper, the law. It's not that the law is useless or even really bad as it comes from God and expresses his holiness. However, we are free from the law in that Christ meets its requirements on our behalf because we could never meet them in a way that sets us free on our own. But how is it that we come to take part in this freedom? Verse 27 answers that question for us by saying, As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. We're set free in the sacrament of baptism. Now, the language of that verse, the idea of clothing yourselves with Christ, is interesting because in the ancient custom, baptism was actually done in the nude, which makes the symbolism of being clothed with Christ a little more apparent. Nevertheless, that's one tradition I'm okay with not bringing back. <laughs> the implications of baptism are found in verse 28. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There's no longer slave or free. There's no longer male or female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Under the law, the entry right into God's family was circumcision, but there were two problems with that. The first is that circumcision isn't exactly gender neutral. And the second is that it became a sign of an ethnicity, of Jew being Jewish. The beauty of the sacrament of baptism and the adoption that comes with it is that it isn't exclusive based on gender, ethnicity, or class. Heck, in the book of Acts, we see a eunuch being baptized and being brought into the family of God, and he was from Ethiopia, which would have been problematic to Jews for a number of reasons. But he's unable to receive the sacrament of baptism. 
It's the sacrament of baptism that makes one a child of Abraham, not physical descendancy, according to verse 29. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offsprings, heirs, according to the promise. Paul makes a similar point in Romans 9 through 11. Not all ethnic Jews are Abraham's seed, but rather those who have faith are the children of the covenant and the true descendants of Abraham. All this is possible because according to chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as children. And because you are children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, then also an heir through God. The term Abba is not a formal term for father. Rather, it's equivalent to our term daddy, which is evident of a special intimacy between father and son or father and daughter. In baptism, we're justified, as Isaiah describes. He has clothed me with a garment of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. But the lasting implication of our baptismal regeneration is the adoption of God, resulting in intimacy with him. For the remaining Christmas season, we should reflect on this amazing reality that we are God's children. As I was thinking through this beautiful reality, I was um, remembering a chapter from a book by an author that I love named Brendan Manning. Brendan Manning was a laicized Catholic priest because he struggled with alcoholism his whole life and he ended up getting married, um, which the Catholics are not fond of having their priests do. So uh, they laicized him and in the subsequent uh, course of his life, he wrote a number of books. His most well-known was called The Ragamuffin Gospel, which is based on a Rich Mullins um, song, but it's, it's a beautiful book. But the book that I was thinking of was a, a different one called The Furious Longing of God, which I have here. It's really short and it's very readable. But what's beautiful about his writing is the raw honesty about his own need for grace paired with the unwavering proclamation that God loves you. And he loves you not in an abstract way, but in the tender way that a father loves his child. And Manning's intimacy with God is especially appropriate for us to reflect on during the season where we celebrate and meditate on the fact that God took on flesh and became one of us. And so I wanted to just read a couple pages from this book, it's short but it's really good. He says, pagan philosophers such as Aristotle arrived at the existence of God via human reason and referred to him in vague and impersonal terms, the uncaused causer, the immovable mover. The prophets of Israel revealed the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in a warmer, more compassionate manner. But only Jesus revealed to an astonished Jewish community that God is truly the Father. If you took the love of all the best mothers and fathers who have lived in the course of human history, all their goodness, kindness, patience, fidelity, wisdom, tenderness, strength, and love, and united all those qualities in a single person, that person's love would only be a faint shadow of the furious love and mercy in the heart of God the Father addressed to you and me at this moment. We hear a beautiful echo of this in chapter 8 of Paul's letter to the Romans where he writes, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received a spirit of adoption 
through which we cry, Abba, Father. Abba means in literal English, Daddy, Papa, my own dear father. American child psychologists tell us that the average American baby begins to speak between the ages of 14 and 18 months. Regardless of the sex of the child, the first word normally spoken at that age is da, dad, da, daddy. A little Jewish child speaking Aramaic in first century Palestine at that same age level would begin to say ab, ab, abba. Jesus' revelation was nothing less than a revolution. From that moment on, no Christian can ever say one form of prayer is as good as another or one religion is as good as another. Jesus is saying that we may address the infinite, transcendent, almighty God with the intimacy, familiarity, and unshaken trust that a 16-month-old baby has sitting in his father's lap. Da, da, daddy. Is your own personal prayer life characterized by the simplicity, childlike candor, boundless trust, and easy familiarity of a little one crawling up its daddy's lap? And assured knowing that the daddy doesn't care if the child falls asleep, starts playing with toys, or even starts chatting with little friends because the daddy knows that the child has essentially chosen to be with him for that moment. Is that spirit of your is that the spirit of your interior prayer life? I will never forget a retreat experience years ago in the Midwest. It was a rather large gathering, about 7,000 people. An invitation for healing prayer followed the night's service. I would go into a side room and meet with those who felt compelled to come. On one particular night, the line extended well beyond midnight, and after finishing, I went straight to bed, not even taking my clothes off as I was so exhausted. About 3 o'clock in the morning, I heard a rap on the door in a squeaky little voice. Brennan, can I talk to you? I opened the door to find a 78-year-old nun, and she began to cry. Sister, what can I do for you? We found two chairs in the hallway, and her story began. I've never told anyone this in my entire life. It started when I was five years old. My father would crawl into my bed and abuse me. When I was nine, he took my virginity. By the time I was 12, I knew every kind of sexual perversion you read about in dirty books. Brennan, do you have any idea how dirty I feel? I've lived with so much hatred of my father and hatred of myself that I would only go to communion when my absence would be conspicuous. In the next few minutes, I prayed with her for healing. Then I asked her if she would find a quiet place every morning for the next 30 days, sit down in a chair, close her eyes, upturn her palms, and pray this one phrase over and over again. Abba, I belong to you. It's a prayer of exactly seven syllables, the number that corresponds perfectly to the rhythm of our breathing. As you inhale, Abba. As you exhale, I belong to you. Through her tears, she agreed. One of the most moving and poetic follow-up letters I've ever received came from this sister. In it, she described the inner healing of her heart, a complete forgiveness of her father, and an inner peace she'd never known in 78 years. She concluded her letter with these words. A year ago, I would have signed this letter with my real name in religious life, Sister Mary Genevieve, but from now on, I'm Daddy's little girl. Be aware, this is not sloppy sentimentality or indulgent wishful thinking, but rather a woman who dared to pray in the childlike trust and deep reverence that Jesus would mark a disciple, and in doing so, discovered the furious longing of her Abba. The greatest gift I've ever received in my life is the Abba experience. I can only stutter and stammer about the power of the Abba encounter. My name is Brendan Manning, and I'm Daddy's little boy. For the rest of Christmas, talk to your Abba as your Abba. Spend time enjoying the presence of your Abba. 
love your Abba because he sure loves you enough that he was willing to send his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. Let us pray. Abba, who wonderfully created and yet more wonderfully restored the dignity of human nature, grant that we may share the divine life of him who humbled himself to share our humanity, your Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.